Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. Be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. The amazing spider talk, the amazing spider talk, come swing through the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing spider. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm the mischievous Mark Giannacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and the author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks, everybody, for our much-delayed Episode 7 of the second season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. My goodness, Dan. Episode 7, it feels like we did Episode 6 like three months ago. (laughs) It was about a month ago. Okay, very good, very good. Well... Good thing we're back, because in the second season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we've been taking a look at how Spider-Man hit the big time during the Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. run on the title. Well, today, we're actually going to look at the very first ever Spider-Man B book. Uh, No, we're not going to have Swarm on, I don't think, are we? No. Uh, (laughs) But no, we're going to be talking about the spectacular Spider-Man magazine. And how it set a unique precedent for the character and his side quests and adventures. All right. Uh, You know, those B books have been rocky over the years, but uh, this is a pretty amazing debut. I think so. Um, But before we get into the depths of that, we also want to thank our new Patreon subscribers who made this episode possible. Uh, I'm going to butcher your names, but I thank you all the same, or we thank you all the same. And they are Alex Lagarda, Chris Markle, and Zachary Parkerson. Well, like many of the issues we've been talking about this season, the spectacular Spider-Man magazines number one and two can be found in your local comic shops, although they are kind of hard to find. Uh, They can also be found on Marvel Unlimited, which I was a bit surprised about, and you can find them on Comixology. But basically, anywhere that you can find comics, and with a little bit of luck, you can find these magazines. But if you do buy them in person, know that they won't fit in a regular bag and board. You're going to get those giant magazine-sized ones. It's like a Life magazine, but with (laughs) Spider-Man. That is Life. Spider-Man is Life, Mark. There we go. All right. But, uh, again, they're kind of hard to find in person, so just go on over to Marvel Unlimited and you can read them through. And if you've read through all of Amazing Spider-Man, you may have already read these strange issues for reasons we'll soon discuss. But either way, we hope you enjoy our episode entitled, I'm Spectacular.
Hi, heroes. This is Stan Lee coming at you. Want you to know, Marvel has always been and always will be a reflection of the world right outside our window. That world may change and evolve, but the one thing that will never change is the way we tell our stories of heroism. Those stories have room for everyone, regardless of their race, gender, religion, or color of their skin. The only things we don't have room for are hatred, intolerance, and bigotry. That man next to you, he's your brother. That woman over there, she's your sister. And that kid walking by, hey, who knows, he may have the proportionate strength of a spider. We're all part of one big family, the human family, and we all come together in the body of Marvel. And you, you're part of that family. You're part of the Marvel universe that moves ever upward and onward to greater glory. In other words, Excelsior! All right, Dan. Well, well, thanks for the great intro. Uh, as is often the case here, uh, I'm about to push my glasses up on my nose and give a quick history lesson here about spectacular Spider-Man magazine. I, I am the what the spiderologist or no, I'm not really. I mean, you know, we can we can call it whatever we want to call Are it. Are you giving yourself titles? <laughs> I don't know. I I I I I. I, I I have a very inflated sense of ego these days. I, I, I it could just be from all the great Spider-Man talk we've been doing, Dan. Uh, You're inventing anyway. like fake degrees for yourself. Exactly. I got a PhD in Peter Parker Palmer. Uh, what? Um, so, Spectacular Spider-Man magazine. This is, for all intents and purposes, the first official B book ever launched with spider-man it's uh, cover dated july 1968 cost a whopping 35 cents for that magazine that was nearly three times as much as a regular issue dan if you know your math right <laughs> well it's hard to imagine that 35 cents was three times the cost of a normal issue with the the prices we've got going on today Right. I mean, but that's the equivalent of getting like Amazing Spider-Man number 800 for how are they, are they charging 10 for that? I haven't even looked up the, the solicit yet. Yeah, it's $10. Oh, my goodness. And I bought a bunch of variants, so I'm going broke on that issue. Anyway, what's important also to note about this, not only that this was a spinoff of the title, but that this was a, an experiment for Marvel and uh, Stanley and John Romita in the black and white magazine format. It's kind of funny that that they would want to be experimenting with a black and white magazine uh, in 1968, which I don't know if you know your kind of pop culture history. I mean, you know, this is like right off, you know, the year after the summer of love and like pop psychedelica being kind of all the raves. So you would think doing something staid and stoic like black and white would uh, kind of buck that trend. Right. Dan? Yeah. Well, what, what did you think about um, how Ramita's, you know, pencils and, and the inks and stuff looked in, in black and white. I mean, it's it's a rare opportunity to see kind of like the comic in a bit rawer form. It's funny, and we I mean we could talk about it also when we talk about that first because only one of the two issues ended up being in black and white, and and that was the first one. But um, I, I got to tell you, like it, it's Ramita is such a polished 
artists that seen his stuff a little more raw in black and white uh didn't really do much for me i i like especially like his his human characters i i I felt like not having the colors to make certain things pop like with mj and gwen and peter um i think it the, the art suffered a bit from it i don't know if i'm being too critical but it's you know i mean the pencil work it's great to see his pencil work just so in your face but he i really do feel he's an artist who needs uh who needs color the stuff that really worked for me, and we'll talk about it with the issue, is some of the non-costume stuff with like J. Jonah Jameson and the kind of seedy politics uh, of it all. I think the yeah. black and white made it a bit more, um, you know, uh, devious in, in some way. Uh, one of our listeners joked to me when we announced that we were doing this, and I I posted something political. They said, "Oh, you know, you can see." Uh, Dicko's influence because all the politics are in black and white, <laughs> which there I thought was a clever joke. Um, Very nice, but yeah. Um, but anyway, but it just just back to the magazine itself. So it, it actually only made it two issues before the pu- the plug was eventually pulled. Like I said, the first one was black and white. The second one they scrapped the experiment and just went full cl- colored. And the other kind of funny thing about it is both of these issues in different ways ended up being reprinted or adapted within the Amazing Spider-Man series. One, the the first issue was an Amazing Spider-Man number uh, 116 to 118, and that was adapted by Jerry Conway and then um, and then Ramita. And then um, Spectacular number two ended up showing up in uh, what's essentially Amazing Spider-Man annual number nine, although I think this was at that point considered king size annual number nine, but that's it's the ninth annual. I'll acknowledge it as such for those who know I like to argue about this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, what do you think about um, you know this is the first Spider-Man B book, although it certainly in many ways doesn't feel like it. What do you what do you think about the kind of history of the B books? It's it's such a funny thing because like on one end it's like as a big Spider-Man fan it's like oh of course I would love an opportunity to read more Spider-Man and you know in 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 both instances these books were done by the like the amazing Spider-Man A team it's Stanley and John Romita doing these two books um and that's not always the case today or even Soon after some of the other B books were launched, like Marvel Team Up and the the Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider Man, uh, the 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 regular comic series, it was usually kind of um, other either newer creators or you know creators looking to do fill in issues, so it lacked like a consistency of tone. So it's like a dual edged sword. I mean, yeah, I like getting more Spider Man, but I always feel, uh, as the name implies, the B books always kind of lacked a certain quality. And, you know, I, I have, I, I think I might be a little harder on the first issue of, of this magazine than you are, but like in general, I feel like these are of a higher quality. So it's like if, 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 if we could have gotten these and web of and, and Peter Parker, Spider-Man, you know, adjective Spider-Man and all those, I mean, maybe those books would seem, more consistently great instead of like you know like we on our you know brother show untold talks of spider-man they occasionally highlight uh, a story from one of these books that they seem to like but for the most part i mean are there like a bunch of b books uh, the, the the b book stories are generally kind of the forgotten stories and and left forgotten uh, i i mean outside of very few exceptions 
Yeah, this is a bit unusual because you never really get the lead team, both artist and writer, doing the B-book or even just one or the other. You know, like they're very much different things. So it's it's almost hard to quantify these as what we typically refer to as B-books, right? This is still kind of like the A-level material given a bit of a bigger stage than it might normally uh, get. Although – you know, you can quali- quantify that however you want because one doesn't have color. Um, yeah. Whether that's a but plus or a minus for you. But even looking at the current status quo, I mean, like, you know, that Chip Starsky, I, mean, I know Cooper doesn't really do the art for it anymore. I mean, you know, I, when they announced that, I was like, oh, like, here are two creators. I like their stuff. I can't wait to see it. And that book is just such a – I mean, I almost feel like it's in its own universe. That book, uh, the 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 new spectacular Spider-Man. I mean, you know, I know you don't really, you're not like super jazzed about it. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of funny that how these books have like never really. It's like they just can't dedicate. I don't know the creative resources or the marketing resources into like making these seem at you know on the same pedestal as as Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, it's 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 funny, and it, it's it, now it seems not because they're being told to keep on kind of keep stuff off the table, right? I mean, I don't feel like Chip Zdarsky is really limited by the B-book format. Um, I just think there's kind of an inherent, you know, acknowledgement that they're less canon than everything else, which is odd when something really in canon happens in them. Uh, In my my mind, you know, there are benefits to the B-books. I think they can spotlight lesser characters in interesting ways. I mean, the best of the B-books is like often for me when it's focusing on supporting cast characters or doing something a little bit different with the character than we might be focusing on in the main title. Um, This certainly is not doing any of those. It is just another mainline Spider-Man story. So, uh, you know, it's it's hard for me to kind of pass judgment on B-books using this as a qualifier because it's so unlike everything else. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the comics themselves here. Um, let's start with the first issue here. And, and like I mentioned in the intro, this this was actually this this story would would resurface um, a couple years later in the seventies uh, in Amazing Spider-Man number one sixteen to one eighteen uh, by Jerry Conway and Romita, which is kind of funny. Like when I was rereading Spectacular magazine, I was like where do I know this story from? And then like, like, Oh, like as I was doing more research, I was like, Oh, of course. And, uh, it kind of prompted me to actually, um, reach out to Jerry Conway, you know, friend of the show here, uh, about what, so what was the deal with that? Why did you reprint this thing or, or adapt it? And, and it's not like, I mean, it's a funny story, but it's, <laughs> you know, I don't know if it, if it's really like a, a, a groundbreaking story, but Jerry mentioned to me that, um, that I guess that Romita was having a hard time keeping up with um, his dual commitments as a Spider-Man artist and also as Marvel's art director. So um, Marvel's then editor-in-chief, Roy Thomas, because remember Stan had kind of stepped down as the editor at that point, uh, mentioned, you know, why don't we just take that old black and white story uh, from the magazine and then uh, adapt it across three issues of ASM to kind of fill the time. Uh, and give Ramita some breathing room. And, and unfortunately, it ended up being twice as much work for Ramita because he was like redoing all these spreads and stuff like that. They couldn't really just reuse the black and white format specifically because it was in black and white. 
Um, so it took him almost more time, basically more time to do it. So um, per, per Jerry Conway's exact words, so net gain, nothing. <laughs> and there, there were a lot of changes between the two books, um, you know, because not only, you know, did they have to make it color and remove the gray wash, they also had to make it fit into modern Spider-Man continuity. And there were a bunch of changes that had happened, like, say, Captain Stacy's death, that right. really changed large parts of the book. So I actually read through issues 116 to 118 and made a bit of some notes of some of the changes that I spotted. So I'll tell you a little bit about what I noticed was different. And there's some big ones. Like, first off, the villain of this story uh, doesn't have a name in the original printing, and they give him a name, the Smasher, when right. he appears. Um, so they is... changed, you know, like little details like that. I mean, I would call that like a big detail. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Although, like you know, calling a villain the Smasher is, um, you know, doesn't really smack of creative juices going here. That definitely yeah. sounds like, like, oh, crap. <laughs> we, we need to fill in the blanks. What's called Mad Lib time? Mad Lib time. He smashes. Okay. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, Go so, with it, baby. <laughs> so they had to kind of change the story a little bit as well. Like I mentioned, um, you know, in the previous issue uh, in 113, I guess a couple of issues before this, Spider-Man had lost his mask. So uh, in this reprint he starts off with a costume shop mask that he had stolen and he's done this a few times throughout the history of the character uh the the villain of one of the other villains of the story i guess the kind of mystery villain of the story is this mayoral candidate raleigh um mm-hmm. who is running for like you know the top office in in uh in new york and you know has been done multiple times in spider-man comics there is Something not entirely honest about this candidate. He, uh, the mob keeps attacking him over and over again, and the smasher is destroying all of his campaign ads. And we kind of come to find out that he is a villain and he's in charge of the mob and all this stuff, and he's using them to garner sympathy for himself from the voters who think he's very anti-mob and anti-villain and all this stuff. You know, the classic, uh, you know, yeah. use he your... He doth protest too much, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, the, the, the person shouting fake news is the person committing fake news fake kind news. of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in order to, like, if, if you read the magazine, Raleigh is actually, like, really sinister from the get-go and Mm -hmm. it kind of gives up this mystery and the ultimate reveal of it almost immediately like you can't possibly read him and go this guy is a good guy Um, so I think Jerry wanted to tone that down so they made some of his dialogue and appearance change in the comic to make him look nicer and more sympathetic and build up that mystery and they also, you know, instead of showing him doing evil things behind the scenes, Jerry had John redraw all those scenes and put Raleigh inside of a mask and a cape. And they called him the supervillain called the Disruptor. 
So I more, mean, like, more bad libs. <laughs> yeah, and, and and more work for John to do. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's not a little thing. And they also played up some more dramatic tension between Peter and Gwen because in the original magazine they're like really getting along, but at the time they were kind of on the rocks a little bit because yep. Peter thought she was cheating on him with Flash Thompson. Um, because they had to break it up into three issues, they added a bunch of kind of artificial cliffhangers where there weren't b- ones before. Um, the most notable being like they're at this dance club and the smasher attacks it and the ceiling caves in and it looks like it's going to kill Gwen. But in the original, the ceiling never caves in. Spider-Man stops it before it even begins to crack. Since George Stacy died at this time, they took all of his scenes and threw Robbie into them instead. Right. Um, so Robbie gets some famous lines about like, uh, you know, being against anybody who's made up their mind about anything without knowing the facts. Um, and they add a bunch of other scenes too. I think to pad out the book to make the full page count. There's a scene where Gwen, MJ, and Harry are all out electioneering. And like the night before, which is, I think, kind of illegal if they went past midnight. Um, <laughs> so uh, they're out like really late electionary and the smasher shows up and uh, like, dis- you know, uh, tries to stop them. And there's also another interesting scene where Spider-Man, as he would do like four issues later, he in order to spare Raleigh the shame after he dies – uh, of being discovered, he takes a disruptor costume and burns it so that no one will ever find out. Uh, much like he did with Norman Osborn uh, after the Gwen Stacy death and everything. So yeah, definitely some some precursors to a lot of things uh, in this book. I mean, just looking strictly at the magazine and and its um, general approach to to storytelling, you know, I mean, like. This is an odd story to, to say the least. I, I like it's not. It, this doesn't feel like a very traditional Spider-Man tale. Um, it just definitely feels like this is being uh, marketed to a larger audience. I think, or not a larger audience, but a, but a broader audience. I think. And uh, actually, and Dan, I don't know. I don't think we're talking about it this season, so I don't know if you've if you've done any reading of this on the side. Um, but what it kind of actually was most reminiscent for me was um, the the Spider-Man comic book strip in the newspapers. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's like, you know, I mean, granted, the, the storytelling in that is a lot different than this because, I mean, you know, a comic strip, it's, you know, three three or four panels a day. And, like, you know, there's just a certain very truncated rhythm to it. But I think in terms of like its tone and its themes and uh, how it portrays the characters, like, you know, it, 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 it's, you know, it's one of Stan's big things when he was doing the, the newspaper strip was, you know, he was also trying to make it seem semi-current. So of course, like here in the magazine, you have this politician who, um, you know, is a considered a, a handsome gentleman, but, you know, might have some, um, see the uh, connections uh, in terms of you know the outside world, uh, and I, I don't know. I was getting a Kennedy vibe, but maybe a little more sinister than Kennedy. But you know, like in terms of like the good-looking politician that all the girls swooned over and wanted to work for and stuff like that, but was kind of a, a dirtbag in real life. Um, I don't know. It's, it's I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, um, in I terms thought it of was analogs. interesting, you know, that this story 
you know, predates Nixon and, and yeah. Reagan because it really plays into the whole like handsome actor kind of guy who's yeah. running for a role. I mean, I don't think these are new kind of ideas to politics, you know, uh, no, Nixon and Reagan's role in politics, but it it is a bit uh, – it's kind of jaded about politics in a way that I don't think people really were – you know, I guess, you know, at that point, you know, having not really seen the kind of impeachment and tragedy and uh, cynicism about politics, it felt very modern to me in a way that a lot of kind of political stories of that age I don't think really do. Right. But, I mean, beyond the political stuff, I just felt like with the characters, like this this story really tries to, like, kind of play the hits in terms of, okay, well... You know, we need to have some cattiness between Gwen and MJ, you know, and we need to, uh, you know, have Peter palling around with Harry and Flash. And then here comes uh, Captain Stacy and Robbie as kind of like the voices of reason and Jonah doing Jonah stuff. I mean, there's not like this doesn't feel it feels a little divorced from the rest of the book. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And we didn't really talk much about why they wanted to print something in a magazine format. But they very much did because they wanted to take up that rack space um, in in all these stores that didn't necessarily have like a spinner rack. They carried magazines. And so you're right. It is a little bit more casual and a little bit less um, reliant on people knowing all of the ins and outs of the current Spider-Man stories. Uh, an interesting note is there's a scene with MJ where she asked, do you think Raleigh would like brunettes? Um, in, implying herself, and we all know that MJ isn't a brunette, but it was right. expecting that people reading this are seeing it in black and white and wouldn't know that she's a redhead. So right. they just arbitrarily change her hair color to brunette. You know, Jerry would later change that in the you know the updated you know reinterpretation of it, but it really speaks to who the audience was is not people that are so caught up on this that they know MJ is a redhead. Yeah, that's that's a good catch, Dan. I didn't even I didn't even see that when I was rereading this. But that's I mean, yeah, it just to me that just kind of speaks again to, you know, this wasn't this wasn't for the hardcore fans. I mean, this was the way you know that was kind of revealed in your um, your interview with um, Ralph Bakshi a few weeks ago that. You know, the cartoon was meant for a very general audience. I feel this is too. I mean, yeah, and and it, it leans on the continuity of a little bit in terms. Of, it's not like completely divorced from that reality, but you know, this was one of many kind of very early attempts by Stan to to bring this the Marvel name and the Spider Man name to to beyond just kind of the spinner rack audience. I mean, it's 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 you gotta you gotta kind of respect that approach um you know it's 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 and so and in a lot of ways that makes it very different from any other b book that would follow because i mean those other you know marvel team up spectacular adjective list web of yada yada i mean these are these are comic books designed for comic book fans and this is something different so um that's that that just kind of strikes me i did want to talk a a little bit more about the politics of the issue because i i do think like a large part of this issue is kind of a moralizing from stan lee in a way that i think anybody could kind of agree with right but it it paints jonah in a really interesting way i think it might be kind of the most corrupt that we see jonah as a figure i mean we always 
he kind of will always support something no matter how corrupt it seems if it adheres to his worldview. But you get a particular moment in the story where Jonah literally says like, remember the newspaper when you get elected and we will remember you. You know, it's like this kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the worst we've seen Jonah since the Dicko days, I would say. Like, this was definitely something I felt that Ramita had moved away from when, when you know, when he came on the book with, with Jonah. Jonah kind of became more uh, aligned with what we saw in like, kind of like the Spider-Man, the Raimi movies, you know, like the, 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 the you know, a blowhard who was, you know, down deep, not an not the worst person, just 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 you know, not a great person. <laughs> but there's some stuff here that implies that he's not a very good person uh, and and is easily corrupted, and 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 stuff that would be contradicted even later in this run, you know, like uh, this run being on Amazing Spider-Man with Ramita and Stan. So, um, you know, <clears throat> they he has been shown to having principles within the same time span as this this magazine came out so it's kind of odd that they they pushed so hard on that i guess they were really just trying to create him as a foil again maybe for more casual people they figured that showing jonah with nuance might just go over the heads of some people and also in regards to politics and the kind of casual nature of this book like there's no political identifiers for raleigh who is like, you know, a sinister, evil political figure, you know, like a few others we've seen, you know, from from this series. I'm thinking of like something like Sam Bullitt. Um, but Jerry in the reprints of this would go back and add in political signifiers saying that Raleigh is a liberal, you know, he's a Democrat, but he's, you know, a, a little bit more conservative than the average Democrat. So he's like a moderate liberal um, and I thought that was an interesting thing, like didn't really need to be added, but, uh, you know, Jerry, you know, felt like a need to add a little bit of a political signifier in here. And I, I, I'd be curious to find out why. Maybe I should have emailed Jerry as myself as well. Yeah, I should have thought to ask him that. Sorry about that. No worries. I'm apologizing on the air to Dan. It's terrible. Um, no, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting where they were going with the politics again. I mean, well, I mean, keep in mind that at this point when this story was originally done, I mean, like obviously there were there were political parties and 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 things afoot. But I feel like you know by the time this got reprinted, um, those those terms I felt took on even more meaning because you had kind of Nixon at the end of his uh, presidency and, and the Republican party was kind of uh, amok uh, in a lot of ways. And um, not that it went away for, not that it went away. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so at that point, like, you know, the democratic party was kind of just in a weird spot itself. So I guess to kind of have this corruptible uh, candidate come forward, but, also be uh, a democrat i don't know i mean I, this this i'm sure there's I'm, I'm i'm not being very elegant how i'm explaining this but um point being is there was kind of more weight to those terms liberal conservative etc by the by the 70s than there was in 68 uh, and other than that this is a pretty like you said standard story you've got the classic evil <laughs> behind the scenes character is controlling a big brute via mind control headset 
device thing, and Spider-Man has to break it and free everybody. Um, but I, again, I did find it interesting that Jerry was trying out some of these tropes, you know, putting Gwen in mortal peril and, uh, because of Spider-Man and, you know, having him burn this costume of a, of a secretive figure, um, you know, but that actually wasn't in the magazine. So the magazine itself is even more kind of standard boilerplate stuff, except for the politics. You know, it's very, uh, like, 15 pages of Spider-Man beating up a large guy that seems to have some radioactive glow about him. Right. And and even with the, the, the adapta- adaptation or reprint or whatever you want to call it in ASM, I mean, this story has gotten zero to any play i feel like in terms of i mean like i it's great i mean you notice some some like you said like precursors to to tropes and whatnot that would be reused but like i feel like in terms of the actual continuity of this storyline we we never get this thing referenced do we i can't think of a time i can't think of the smasher ever reappearing yeah or even them being like hey remember that time (laughs) hey guys (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think probably because these tropes were all used either before or again in a better way. I mean, this is even, you know, the the kind of broader audience of comic book people, this is after Sam Bullet, you know, which is a very similar idea. And and it also came at such a weird time for Spider-Man in the book, like I'm thinking the reprint, because, I mean, think about it. I mean, you had... Immediately before, you had the gang war storyline with Doc Ock and introducing Hammerhead. That was considered fairly significant for its time. And then you had the two Hulk issues, and then you had two issues where, you know, nothing significant happened outside of the death of Gwen and and the end of the Silver Age. Uh, So (laughs) it's, it's easy for it to get forgotten when you think about it in the context of, like, what immediately preceded and followed it. Yeah. Well, there's another thing we haven't really mentioned yet that I found interesting is that the back of this book, talking about a casual audience, it retells the story of Amazing Fantasy 15, except this time drawn by Larry Lieber. Um, and it's a, it's a condensed version of it, although I don't really think it's that much shorter in terms of page count. Yeah. And just in case anyone knows, Larry Lieber was Stan Lee's brother. Yeah. So I actually think the story is really beautifully drawn. Um, it's more in John Romita's style, but uh, yeah, it's probably the best work I've ever seen Lieber do. Because um, I know he also did the—I uh, think he did that annual the, with the Peters parents, and I don't know the artwork on that never really blew me away. But but you're right, this this um, origin story is really well done. What's interesting to me though is that there's a few notable changes to the origin story and. Uh, you know, this is Stan Lee writing it. So, like, whether he remembered his exact story or not, or <laughs> this was him trying to update it and make a few changes that he thought were improvements on the story, um, are interesting, especially including how some of the dialogue is played. The The big changes that I found are that, like, some of the order of events are rearranged, and Stan, in the text of the storytelling, does admit that he's speeding things up because they're condensing the story. Like it's like one of those rare or maybe not so rare with Stan editorial editions that says like, Hey fans, guess what? We're speeding through this. But um, there's a moment where after he gets his powers before he, you know, dodges the car and jumps to the wall where uh, a bunch of thugs try to kind of beat him up while he's in like a bit of a daze. 
and he dodges them and you know punches back and ends up like hitting this lamppost um which is different and then the car comes at him um and then there's also a reworking of the famous line uh this time having peter say yes uncle ben is dead and in a sense it's really i who killed him because i didn't realize in time that with great power there must also always be great responsibility which is, uh, you know, it's interesting because he has Peter say it this time, which means right. that Stanley must acknowledge that, that this was a really important part of the Spider-Man mythos, this phrase, um, you know, well before it would kind of be popularized as something Uncle Ben said to Peter. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's Stan, even though, like you said, he changes kind of the the origins of who said it, you know, the omniscient narrator versus Peter himself. I mean, it's it's Stan certainly knew enough to know that this was a significant expression that needed to be kind of brandied about. Yeah. And um, another thing that I found really interesting is that this relates to our Ralph Bakshi interview episode is that um, these changes are reflected in that first episode that he did, The Origin of Spider-Man. For the first episode of season two, and before, um, you know, obviously I watched that episode before interviewing him, and I, th- I took note of those changes and, and asked him about it on the show. Those are the exact changes that are different on his show, including all the dialogue is exactly pulled from this backup of this magazine rather than amazing fantasy 15. That's where all the discrepancies and all of the plotting and dialogue from his episode come from, which is interesting because, um, I mean, first of all, it's interesting that this is the source he went to for that episode, but it's also interesting because that magazine, like we said, came out in July, 1968 and the episode of the show came out in September, (laughs) like two months later. So when he talked about quick turnaround, I mean, oh, my God. Like, (laughs) talk about turnaround. I mean, these are probably being written at the same exact time. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it. Interesting. Or, Um, you know, it could very well be that Stan watched his show and took it from there. I mean, who knows, chicken, egg, where that came from. I imagine the comic came first. I Probably. Do you want to talk about issue number two here? Yeah, this is the one that's really worth talking about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you certainly found a bunch of interesting discrepancies and stuff with the first one. I mean, this is Spectacular Magazine number two is, I would say, a much more straightforward Spider-Man story. I mean, this, uh, you know, actually, you know, as as much as the first issue kind of feels like, a, you know, something for casual fans to pick up and get immersed in Spider-Man without having to have an education and everything, this one throws all that to the wind. Uh, in addition to being a full color, I mean, like this, this, this puts everyone smack dab in the middle of the the Spider-Man, Norman Osborn saga, Green Goblin saga that have been building since uh, Osborn's last appearance as the Goblin uh, in Amazing Spider-Man number forty. Uh, something that the the comics have been kind of slowly building uh, at and hinting that was coming over the years. You know, Norman kind of slowly getting over his amnesia uh, from his fight with Spider-Man and, and putting two and two together and, and remembering that he was the Green Goblin and that uh, Peter Parker was Spider-Man to kind of elevate the threat. And 
it's funny too, Dan, because I feel like despite the fact that that this comic actually is a pretty critical point in that relationship uh, and, and a critical point continuity, this comic also doesn't get a lot of legacy type references uh, in Spider-Man history. I mean, I, I actually wrote about it uh, during um, the Goblin Nation story in Superior. I did a, a countdown on Chasing Amazing of my 10 favorite Goblin stories, and I put this, I think, at either 9 or number 8. And it actually confused a lot of people. They were like, I don't even think I read this story. And it's like, no, I mean, like, this is a critical point. And, and I think people gloss over it because they kind of think, you know, they're they're going based on just Amazing Spider-Man. And they, they know that, you know, Norman appears in, in ASM 40 as the Goblin and he has his amnesia. And we don't see him in ASM become the Goblin again until the very famous uh, drug code issues, which, you know, we will be addressing later in the season. But no, this is like the story that's a bridge to those two big stories. Um, so, and, and even if you read it in the king-sized annual number nine, you read a compromised version of it because there's twelve or so pages missing from that issue that are you know presented here. So you get a, a far more expanded, more epic story. Yeah, I mean, with all that said, I think this is a very it's a, this is a great story. Um, this really establishes Osborne as a threat in a way that no other villain is in Spider-Man's universe. I think this really drives it home. I think it drives it home better than those drug code issues do. And, and then, in a different way than how we got it in, in 39 and 40 because there, you know, like there's a threat to Peter that he knows his identity. But this one I think – for me, is the first one that really establishes that, no, that threat extends beyond Peter to the supporting cast. You know, you've got all these scenes of Peter hanging out with Aunt Meg and Gwen and Harry and all these people, and you realize just how in danger they are and how isolated Peter is as the one person that knows what exactly is going on as Norman is kind of losing his mind. Yeah, I mean, this... Quite frankly, without this storyline kind of setting the template for it, I don't know if what most consider to be the most important Spider-Man story of all time could have happened. Uh, this 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 idea of just how personally Osborne could hurt Peter, and it's done in it's and but like even beyond just the idea, which is a great idea to really be exploring a comic book. Like I, I just feel like this is well executed. I mean, there's a lot of tension and how the story kind of slowly unfurls like you said like like establishing peter's relationship with all these different characters and then you get you get this at like you know this crazy awkward dinner party scene which i don't know if it was intentionally referenced or not but kind of you know thinking ahead brought me to those spectacular issues with um harry osborne and the, and the dinner party uh, in the in the and the Harry Osborne goes crazy storyline from the nineties. Remember that one? Yeah, of course. Or even the first Spider Man movie, where you know, like he invites everybody to dinner for Thanksgiving in in, in Harry's apartment, and and Peter has to sit there knowing what he knows about Norman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do, do we want to give a brief outline of what this story really is about? Sure. Do you want to go? Why don't you? Why don't you? Give everyone that. Sure. So, like, this is kind of following up on the events of issue 40 of Amazing Spider-Man where Norman got, like, amnesia and forgot that he was the goblin and Peter burned the goblin costume. But um, they are watching footage of 
you know, a, a Spider-Man fighting the Goblin and starts to trigger Norman uh, to having these kind of attacks, I guess, attacks of memory where yeah. he kind of begins to relapse into his Goblin persona. And you've got Peter, who's the only one who knows really what's going on and is fearful that if this were to return, he's in a lot of trouble. His aunt is going to have a heart attack because of her weakened heart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you slowly watch this slow boil. And it is a slow boil, Mark. There's like 20 pages of setup for this. Yeah. Um, but that's, but it's good setup. This is, this is, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a slow walk to terror. Yeah. It's the kind of thing you could only do in a book of this kind of format. Right. I mean, you couldn't, do a story this slow and and methodical in twenty eight pages or whatever it was. Um, you, you know, you got sixty one. I think is the total page count of this when it's all done. Um, yeah, and it's even longer than the first one, which had more pages, but also had that backup. So you're getting a ton of story here, and eventually, obviously, Norman will relapse and become the Green Goblin again. And I think, you know, canonically, this is the first time we've seen the Goblin, like, uh, hideouts and and equipment stashes. He, like, runs to get his stuff and begins kind of trailing Peter around town secretively as the Goblin and finding the right time to strike and really torture him in in some way. And uh, eventually things come to a head. And you get these crazy psychedelic scenes. Speaking of psychedelic, like you said earlier, he throws these kind of like hallucinogenic pumpkin bombs at Peter. And, you know, you get these crazy, amazing imagery of ghouls and ghosts and demons, you know, hunting down Peter. Deformed figures. I mean, to me, this is this is a book that screams the late 60s, which is like the polar opposite of a black and white kind of grimy political story that you got in the first issue of this magazine. I mean, it's it's literally two different books. It's super colorful, too. I mean, like, this thing is just, like, bold splashes of color. All that green from the Green Goblin really stands out. Um, and you got John Romita delivering, like, uh, uh, even a double-page spread, which is highly unusual for this era. So that was really neat to see. And... Uh, Ultimately, it comes down to Peter defeats the goblin by using his own psychedelics against him and convincing him that he's terrified of both the goblin and Spider-Man until he, like, has a psychological breakdown um, and, like, his brain forces him to forget everything he knew. And uh, it's kind of a messed up moment, frankly. And we would never see Norman Osborn again. Yeah. So that's kind of the end of it. And, uh... Yeah, so anyway, back to back to our, our conversation about it. But, I mean, if you haven't read it, it's a good little recap there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, like, I, I, I'm assuming you're in agreement with me that this is this is a fun issue, right? I mean, this is this, this feels very at home in the Spider-Man universe. I mean, beyond its importance, I think, to, to the continuity, I just, like, I legitimately enjoy this story. Yeah, I think it's one of the best Goblin stories. I might even rank it higher than you did on your list. Uh, rereading it recently, I and mean, it's been a long time since I've read these magazines, and I'm thankful that they're available on uh, Unlimited uh, for other people to check out. Because my, you know, I, I had encountered them through the years, but never owned one. Uh, so being able to read it in full without having it condensed for those later issues was a real, uh, like, awesome thing. I think. 
Definitely. One of the last things I wanted to talk about before we uh, kind of take this home, Mark, is that the final page, there's only two issues of this magazine, but they did tease a third issue, The Mystery of the TV Terror, which uh, has this image of all these cameras cornering <laughs> Spider-Man. It almost looks like uh, he went back to the Ed Sullivan show and they, they turned <laughs> on him in some way. Oh, no. Um, yeah, which um, it's funny because we never got that issue. But a few years ago, and I forget the comic it was in, Marvel teased that they would actually be printing this story in an annual, but it never happened. And it makes me wonder, like, does this story actually exist in some form? Did Stan write it and then they got another artist to do it? Because they definitely teased, like, there was a backup that printed, like, we're going to get this story. So if – Spectacular Spider-Man magazine didn't technically count, and they didn't put it in an annual, even though they said they would. I don't know. I'm just trying. I, I feel like I'm getting to Inception level here in terms of what counts and what doesn't. <laughs> I, I like, just want to know if this story is like there's this lost John Romita Senior Stan Lee story that we never got. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I I wish I knew, but I don't. You know, we need to get. Jazzy John on here, I think, to verify. This is truly one of the untold tales of Spider-Man. Yeah, I think I think that you know Matt and uh, Kane should talk about this if they can find a way to get their hands on it. There's definitely some research to be done about the existence of this book, but um, altogether, like short-lived run, two issues. But I think definitely something that had a large impact on. Uh, you know, the the history of Spider-Man, the variety of formats it would appear in. Have we ever gotten anything quite like this from Spider-Man again? A, a magazine formatted book? I mean, he was in a couple of graphic novels you know, when Marvel was doing the OGNs um, in the 80s. Like there's like the Doctor Strange graphic novel. And of course, like, well, the Sp- I don't know. It was, I'm trying to remember. Was Spider-Man Wolverine a graphic novel or a one shot? I think it was a one-shot, but you've got things like Spider-Man Hooky. Yeah, yeah. And, so, but uh, not, but it's not the same. It's not no. quite like this. Uh, this is very unique, and and I don't even know outside of like you know the Marvel 100th anniversary magazine that came out a couple of years ago. If Marvel has done this with any of their properties since, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Time for experimentation for sure. Well, you know. I, I don't know if the experimentation is print, but <laughs> in this day and age, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it, uh, it is interesting to kind of go back and see, not that when they were more inclined to take risk, but, you know, I guess more inclined to change things up a bit. Yeah. Well, uh, Mark, why don't you take us home? I will. Uh, well, thank you for joining us for our seventh episode of the second season of the all new Amazing Spider Talk. Dan, our next episode will be out in about two weeks, and I think we'll stay close to on schedule for this one. Uh, What's the title for that one? Yeah, it's going to be called Rejecting the Comic Book Code. It's our discussion about the comic book code itself, its impact on comics, and what it meant that Stan Lee chose to reject it and put out issues of Amazing Spider-Man that didn't follow the code and, I think, as a result, attracted mainstream media attention in the New York Times – which is kind of the first time Spider-Man's kind of gone mainstream in terms of awareness, um, yeah. you know, and this kind of daring attitude towards uh, regulation from Stan Lee. Yeah, what 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 a rebel that Stanley was. Uh. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a cool moment in not just the history of Spider-Man comics, but comics in general. Um, you know, and, and it will be a way for us to discuss kind of like the atmosphere that surrounded comics. Like there was certainly a big fear in the country about comics and, and that'll be interesting to get into. Absolutely. Uh, now, in terms of you, our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week uh, for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 800 and Avengers Infinity War. Uh, remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, Swarm B-Book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commission artwork, this time from Alex Saviuk. Yeah, and Mark, we're going to try to get that review of Amazing Spider-Man number 800 out as close as we can to release date. I'm traveling for the weekend, but I'm going to try to kind of get it to, to you guys uh, ASAP because we know everybody is chomping at the bit or will likely be chomping at the bit to talk about that. Chomping like the carnage bombs. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, you know, in the meantime, though, guys, also be sure to check out some of our other shows. We're not our shows, but our friend shows. Uh, our like, family of shows. There we're, we we're, go. A pod, we're a podcast media empire here, Dan. Here we are. Here we are. So uh, the ultimate spin, which recently announced that the show is going to be wrapping up soon, which is definitely caused me to shed a few tears. But um, yeah. they're going to be wrapping up the Spider-Gwen storyline uh, in the next few months. So that'll be fun to kind of join them for as they kind of nostalgically look back on that series and their own show. And then we've also got our brand new show, or well, rather Kane and Matt's brand new show that we've already referenced several times on here before, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, where, Mark, you recently joined for a discussion of the comics that, that like the cosmic carnage story. Yeah, I mean those those books. I mean by the legendary Tom DeFalco. I mean, man, if you want Marvel comics that took place during the Heroes Reborn uh, timeline, let me tell you that is the show to listen to me talk to two other people talk about those comics. <laughs> <laughs> and they recently just put out an episode about that. Uh, I guess kind of infamous issue or storyline trouble. Do you do you know this one, Mark? Yeah, this is with Aunt May, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to hear discussion about really weird Spider-Man stories, that's going on on the Untold. Talks of Spider-Man. Excellent. Uh, what about our Spider Slack community, Dan? Yeah, the Spider Slack community is going really strong. Um, I got a link in the description to this podcast, so you can click on that link and join our community there. We got about like a hundred people all in that portal talking about Spider-Man, sharing images, sharing stories that they got. We got some cool commissioned artwork pictures coming in there. So yeah. uh, we're having a lot of fun there as always. I bet it will really light up around issue 800. Yeah, and even I occasionally make an appearance there, occasionally. All right. Well, that's something to look forward to. Mark. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, uh, you do make a lot more appearances on Twitter and other places on the Internet. Where can we find you? Yeah, of course, you can find me at Chasing ASM Blog on Twitter, as you mentioned. Uh, and uh, ChasingAmazingBlog.com got a little bit of action this week. I was part of the return of the Super Blog team up. As part of a special reign of the Superblog team up, I, I, I did one of my little uh, 
trips down memory lane with a comic from the past, uh, looking at Amazing Spider-Man number 393. Speaking of just random comics featuring the characters of Maximum Carnage in it, that's the one with Shriek and Carry On on the cover. Uh, but no Carnage. That's a that he's not in this one. And, of course, you can get my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. And uh, you can find me on AmazingSpireTalk.com. Uh, and I think that's most of my appearances. How about you, Dan? <laughs> well, Mark, I actually wanted to talk to you about this uh, on the air because you wrote Uh-oh. about 393 being the issue that caused you to start collecting comics, correct? I did, or or just kind of the idea of collecting Spider-Man comics specifically, yes. Well, weirdly enough, that's the exact same issue that got me to start collecting Spider-Man comics. No, get out of here. I'm Come not on. lying to you. I'm not lying to you. It was the first one I bought as they were coming out. That's uh, th- Okay, then you went back and got 375 and all these – or you had 375, but you – I, I see where this is going. I did. I read 375 for like a while and, and ha- bought a few here and there of like back issues and stuff. But that was the first one that came out that I bought on the stands when it came out and said, I'm going to keep doing this. All right. Well, that's that's kind of amazing that you and I were probably in a local comic book shop, me on Long Island, you. I'm assuming you were in Maryland at that point, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we we both stumbled upon that that comic with Shriek and Carry On on the cover, and said, "Hey, let's let's go do this." It was fated to happen, Mark. It was fated to happen. Well, where else can we find your thoughts on comic books, Dan? Oh, thanks. Sorry for re- for that. Re- I'm redirecting. You can find me on Twitter at at sup spider talk, where I talk about Spider Man, or my like more casual account at Dan Gavazdan, where I talk about everything and complain about movies and all that stuff, and get crotchety and have people come at me about it. And John, uh, Dan, you just need to do what I do and just put it all into one Twitter account and just be crotchety about comics and movies and politics all at Subspider Talk. That's what I think. I think you're probably right, but people have actually complained when I talk about like politics or whatever on the Subspider Talk account, which like that's annoying. <laughs> See, people but people know it. better not to complain with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's that, and I'll be writing the review of Amazing Spider-Man number 800 over at AmazingSpiderTalk.com so go and check it out there so Mark we like to end our show in a particular way and that's with a quote so whether it comes from Stan Lee's weird narrator you know boxes or from the mouth of Peter Parker in Spectacular Spider-Man magazine number one what is our favorite quote to end the show on well, of course, Dan, that expression is with great podcasts must also always be the all new Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.